This is Darren Pulsifer, and welcome to Rise of the Stack Developer, where the convergence of DevOps, security, and cloud-native technologies are changing the way products are developed. Today on Rise of the Stack Developer, we're going to talk about the history of application development and how it's changed over the last So let's first start with old school application development. Uh, you typically go out and you say, I've got an application, I need to go buy hardware to run that application. This still happens today, believe it or not. A lot of people still uh, go down this route. And um, what we find is it's really easy, right? I've got an application. I think I know how much uh, resources it needs, both in compute and storage. And then I'm going to uh, hook it up to a network. Traditionally, in large organizations, there tend to be a lot of uh, documentation with this, whether it's a systems engineering architecture, whatever it is. It, you end up writing a bunch of our, um, documentation to justify why you're writing this out. It tends to lead to really long development times and um, really no real use of technology. I have purpose-built this uh, server for this specific thing, for this specific application, and um, that's how it goes. It could be um, a COBOL application. We've seen this uh, several times. I built a hardware device uh, for my COBOL application that's going to calculate HR uh, payroll, for example. Uh, some of those systems still exist today, and they've been around for 40, 50 years in some cases. What we also find is um, a problem with the old school uh, technique is that it can be very hard to integrate new technology into it or new applications because everything is self-contained. Um, it can um, cause you some problems when you want to go back and start integrating with other things. So about, I guess it's been almost uh, close to 15 years now, maybe even closer to 20 years now, um, we had hardware virtualization um, thanks to the likes of VMware and um, others in that uh, same boat like KVM and hypervisors uh, like Hyper-V. We now have the concept of virtualization. Now virtualization gave us virtual machines it also gave us, just recently over the last five or six years, virtual storage and also um, the latecomer to the whole game, but taking off like wildfire is uh, network virtualization functions. So now we've added in this hardware virtualization layer, which makes it much easier now for me to provision um, hardware resources for my applications. And they're virtualized now. So now I can use the same piece of hardware to run multiple applications. And I've kind of abstracted away the need to know every little detail about the hardware for my application. This is really good. This gives me common uh, hardware that I can reuse over and over again. It's going to decrease my cost in my IT organization, um, both on CapEx and OpEx. So this is all good news. One thing that pops up when we start doing virtualization is security concerns because now I've got an application that is running with other applications on the same hardware. Where in old school methodology where I build 
hardware for a specific application, I can really lock things down pretty tight. Um, so now I've got this uh, concern with uh, increased uh, security concerns, right? Because now I've got multiple applications running on the same hardware. Um, so I've, I, you can still increase security, but now it's an extra effort that you have to do. Another big problem that we have with uh, virtualization is the concept of noisy neighbor. Now, noisy neighbor is really easy to understand when you can consider that there are multiple applications running on the same machine. And um, there are consequences of that happening. It can be that one uh, application is really, you know, hammering the network, which could impede your use of the network for your application. Or it could be hammering the I.O. bus or um, memory or lots of other things. So you have to be somewhat cognizant of that. Most of your modern virtualization hypervisors have in some protections here, but not completely. Right. So hardware virtualization really took off about 20 years ago. Really great. Um, things, things moved uh, very quickly. And uh, we also saw an increase in the number of applications that were being developed, which is really good, right? Because now I can do more with my data than I've ever done before. Then steps in cloud technology. Now, cloud technology, really what they did with cloud technology was they let you rent out uh, their infrastructure. And it started primarily with Amazon. There were some other um, companies before that. A great example was Sun. Uh, technologies. SunGrid Engine um, had a public cloud offering. Most of you may not know that. Um, their business model wasn't quite as, um, what's the right word, um, monetizable as uh, Amazon's because they charge per CPU time where Amazon is charging wall clock time, which means um, Amazon had the ability to over-provision machines and um, get more money out of an individual clock cycle than a SunGrid engine, which was only charging you for the time that you used a CPU time on uh, their machines. So cloud really took off when that business model shifted. Um, people could then go and buy hardware, both compute, storage, and network for a certain amount of time. Um, this was great if your company didn't want to invest in CapEx costs for those bursty type of um, holiday seasons, for example. And this gave you the ability to burst out into the cloud uh, and consume all that capacity that you needed during that time. Um, they also took care of a lot of operational things that you would normally have to do with your own infrastructure, uh, which made it um, much easier to uh, consume. So they did a great job with this, right? So it decreased your OPEX and CAPEX costs, you know, on uh, the way that they set this up. Now, it also in increased uh, some other concerns. Noisy neighbor now goes up even more because now you have no control over some of the other applications that might be running on the public cloud that could be impeding you, right? Um, and then you also have integration costs. Now your data is now sitting in the public cloud and possibly in the private cloud. This is where I see a lot of organizations today. What do I do? Do I do everything in the public cloud? Do I have some private, some public? And that integration cost uh, goes up because uh, things are very different in the, in the two clouds, both on-prem and then um, 
in your public cloud. Now, we also saw in the last six years or so the increase in private cloud uh, technology where that ecosystem has gotten much richer and now I can do a lot of the same things that I can do in the public cloud in my own private cloud, uh, which is really nice. The opera operational side of things has become much easier. So these two um, technologies together are, are very viable options where maybe six years ago, uh, public cloud was really the way to go to, to cloud and private cloud, the technology technology and ecosystem just wasn't there yet. But now in today's um, ecosystem, I would say they're on par with each other and, and doing pretty well. In fact, many of the public cloud offerings um, that are out there today are also offering private cloud or on-prem offerings of their own technology. And we're seeing the same thing with the private cloud vendors like OpenStack, uh, Red Hat, and um, VMware and Nutanix are all offering uh, offerings in the public cloud as well. They, uh, we're starting to see a mesh of those two. Now, the next uh, thing that we saw happen, and, it's, and we're really in the throes of this today, is server and container technology sitting on top of these cloud offerings that are out there. Um, people talk about serverless. Well, guess what? The, in reality, you still need a server to run your uh, application or your servlets, uh, whatever you want to call them. It just may be happening under the covers. And that's where we're at as far as app development. Now, I drop my application on several containers, and those containers then get deployed out into a private or a public cloud. What container and service technology have um, offered us is yet another level of abstraction. Instead of me thinking about, I need a VM, I need a, um, a volume that's mounted, in a certain spot. Now I've abstracted that to another level where now I just have a container that may uh, need um, a certain size of VM um, or maybe it doesn't, right? Maybe I don't even care about that, just run it on any old VM. So we're starting to see um, at the service management layer a pretty rich ecosystem just in the last three years. The main competitors there have been uh, Kubernetes, which um, appears to have won uh, Docker Swarm and Mesos as your service management layer. And there are several other new projects that are sitting on top of that to make it even easier to deal with uh, containers, volumes, and these overlay networks. So really rich ecosystem, still a little young, but uh, moving along quite well. The really cool thing about this is um, the service management layer, a lot of them are including like a multi-cloud architecture. So now I don't even care which cloud my containers are running in or my applications that make up my containers. I can even have an application that's spanning multiple clouds because I've got containers that are running both in my private cloud and my public cloud. And I've created an overlay network that connects the two together. Uh, really cool uh, technology. Um, much easier to integrate than um, VMs talking to each other uh, because they've taken care of, they've abstracted a lot of that connectivity away. Um, increased, what we have is increased complexity. Instead of dealing with a three-tier architecture, now I'm dealing with tens, if not um, several dozen uh, uh, services that are running and um, that increases my complexity, which makes it a little bit harder to manage. 
And then the big question that comes up with all this, I've abstracted everything away. Now my big question is, is where's my data? Is it in the private cloud? Is it in the public cloud? Um, that service management layer, um, they haven't really done a great job at um, fixing the volume or the storage issue yet. They have some inklings of moving in the right direction. We'll have to wait and see how that, this all uh, pans out over the next couple of years. Now, another thing that's happened in this is Internet of Things. And you guys have all heard about Internet of Things. It's going to increase the number of devices on the Internet by like tenfold. The amount of data it's going to generate is astronomical. And we've actually increased the amount of complexity yet again. Now, my data is not in a public or private cloud. My data is out there in the Internet of Things. I've got all of these devices that are generating gobs and gobs of data. And do I move all that data? Do I move it up to the private cloud? Do I move it into the public cloud? My edge is becoming smarter now. So do I start running containers on the edge? Do I start running applications on the edge? How do I manage that? This becomes much more complex than what we had before. So as you can see, Internet of Things is a great thing because I have higher visibility, I've increased the amount of data that I can work with and get better answers, but it also comes with um, some concerns like security concerns. I no longer um, have security within the walls of my private clouds within my data center or even in the public clouds in their data centers. Um, I now have a small mini data center sitting on a camera um, on a light post in a city, in a smart city, for example. Uh, this becomes uh, pretty tricky, right? And then where is my data? How do I manage that data? How do I trust my edge devices? How do my edge devices trust where they're pushing data to or pushing results of running analytics on the edge? Lots of big questions here. How do I manage this? This, this area here is still really nascent, still a great opportunity for startups, great opportunity for companies to invest in. Um, whoever can figure out a lot of these issues right up front is, is going to uh, make a lot of money and, um, and hopefully solve a lot of problems. Now, the next thing that I think uh, we're going to see happen is something that I call data and information management. Now, you would think um, the chief information officer would be all over this, right? Because they, they are the chief information officer. But I kind of hate to, to say this, but I really think CIOs over the last 20 years have turned into chief infrastructure officers, not really watching out for the data, but more concerned about reliability, concerned about cost, uh, security, and uh, physical infrastructure more than uh, really looking at data. And we've seen a major trend over the last three or four years on a new um, chief executive uh, called the uh, uh, chief data officer. Um, maybe that's because the CIOs, of which I was one at one time, I can tell you I wasn't concerned about data nearly as much as about infrastructure and keeping everything going. And that's maybe because the CIOs have kind of dropped the ball on that. Um, it's hard, it's hard to say, it's hard to um, keep everything running while also looking at the future. So this is, this is a tough one. 
But the good news is, is we're starting to see some companies really think hard about this problem that IoT has um, introduced and containers have introduced, and that is the management of data across several different locations, both public and private, and now out in the fog of the IoT world. So um, the concept of the distributed information management layer is a concept that we see starting to bubble up. Um, if we do it right, um, we will have automated, automated uh, data management. We will understand where data is generated. We will be able to govern that data. We will have lineage and all those sorts of things. Again, now uh, the state, uh, distributed information management layer or demo, um, we've got to be concerned about security and how we're protecting that data. And also we need to make sure that we are classifying um, uh, profiles of data as you move into like um, uh, government space or public sector. Now there's other rules and regulations around what you can do with that data and how that data uh, needs to be managed. So if I take a look at a high level view on how all of this uh, fits together, I have to make sure that I have security across the whole board from the application layer all the way down through the information management, service management, public and private clouds, internet of things, and down into the um, physical layer. Now, there's two major aspects of security. One is your security aspect that we are um, tend to think about as far as protecting my infrastructure. So I'm doing detection, encryption of, um, uh, of my data. I've got hardware root of trust, so I know who's running in my system is the right people running in my system, and then I have remediation once I've detected something. So that's your typical security aspect. Another really interesting aspect, and I used to just call it identity in security, but talking to a lot of customers recently, I've realized that identity is becoming even more important, especially when I've got identity that spans across multiple clouds and across IoT devices. So not only is it the identity of the person accessing data or applications, but it's the identity of your Internet of Things devices. They need identity. They need access, authorization, authentication, and I need to manage keys across these devices as well as individuals. So this becomes an interesting um, aspect, and I, it's one we're going to be uh, uh, watching out uh, very carefully and um, hopefully influencing over the next um, couple years. Now, if I look at the high-level picture on how all this fits together, you can see this high-level view or architecture of what we think the data center without walls will look like, where I've got my security and identity aspects that span the full um, stack from application layer down to physical layer, and then I also have my security aspect doing the same thing. On the bottom of this stack, I will still have hardware. You still need silicon to run the actual things. People kind of forget that sometimes. They go, oh, containers will be the downfall of the OEMs. Oh, actually, I don't think so. Actually, I think it will increase the amount of applications that we write, which increases the consumption of that physical layer. So 
I think um, I'm, I'm very bullish on um, the OEMs and on silicon manufacturers um, because I think we're going to see a huge drive in consumption of data over uh, the next couple decades. Um, but in order for that to happen, we're going to have to have strong abstraction layers, like our software-defined infrastructure layer, which includes my public and private clouds, like my service management layer, which is my container ecosystem, like my distributed information management layer, which still needs to be built out. And then my application layer, I even see my application layers becoming even more and more abstracted away from the hardware and more talking about what we dreamt about years ago, service level agreements, quality of service, that they are passing those kinds of um, requirements down into the layers below and those layers below will then serve up the appropriate hardware, network storage, compute at the right time in the right place. Thanks for listening to Rise of the Stack Developer. If you enjoyed our podcast, go ahead and subscribe. Give us five stars and let other people know. If you want more information, like tutorials, videos, white papers, check out our website, riseofthestackdev.com. Until next time, go out and build a new world, one stack at a time.